0: Lord, we do uh, echo those prayers, desire the same things. We have our desires as to how these might be answered, but bottom line, we desire your will and we desire that you would work in, in your way, in your timing, in your power. So we desire to commit all of these people that we pray for. We also desire that uh, this morning as we concentrate on your word, that it would come alive to us, that we would have a vision particularly a vision for Jewish people. I know there's very few here in this community, in this location, but yet we may encounter them. May we be good witnesses to them. Bless them that they may, in fact, see a different attitude than what they see in the world. So we just commit our study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago... I gave you an introduction to the passage that we're looking at, and one of the things I tried to stress, and I called your attention, this is no longer the latest issue, there's another one that's out, but the one just before the latest, the uh, title story or the cover story is The Rising Evil of Anti-Semitism. And that is an issue, and in the first century there was anti-Semitism in the city of Rome. When Paul writes the book of Romans, it'll only be a few years, and all the Jews will be expelled, essentially out of Jerusalem, and basically out of all of Israel as well. So lots of anti-Semitism at that time frame. So... There were believers in Rome, so they would have been familiar with some of the sites that we saw when we were there. And there were also uh, Gentiles, obviously, but there were both Jews and Gentiles that made up the multiple churches in uh, the city of Rome in the first century. This letter is written to them. Just kind of a reminder of the broad context of what we're looking at, first eight chapters, we... Spent, what, how many years looking at the provision of God's righteousness. God has provided his very own righteousness to overturn and reverse the depravity. He talks a lot about depravity and our need for righteousness. And God provides it. Chapters 1 through 8. It's by grace through faith alone. Now that by itself went against the current thinking of Judaism in the first century as well. And I gave you lots of other issues that Paul raises. And the first part of chapter 9, we get into some of those issues. I entitled this whole division, chapters 9 through 11, Vindication. The focus is going to shift from chapters 1 through 8 to chapters 9 through 11. The focus is going to be on God. The provision of righteousness focuses on unbelievers that need righteousness. And once we receive it, we grow in righteousness. That's sanctification, six, chapter six through eight. And the focus will shift to God and Paul is going to vindicate the character and the righteousness of God because there would have been some issues that have been raised, not just by Jewish people, but anyone that was thinking concerning What's the situation with the nation of Israel? In light of, we have all of the Old Testament, they have covenants, they have promises, they are still active in their, their ritual, and there's many Jewish people that obviously are right before us. What about all those promises? Do they go by the wayside, and now the door's been opened to Gentiles? which would be abhorrent to Jewish people because they had an attitude that uh, they were the chosen people. Well, are they the chosen people or not? Or did God take back some of these ideas? And what Paul is going to do in 9 through 11 is vindicate God's righteousness in light of the setting aside of the nation of Israel, not removing them. In fact, remember in the introduction, the church does not replace Israel It's called Replacement Theology. It's a false doctrine, and it has stimulated a lot of people within the church, throughout the history of the church, to the next step of not only rejecting Israel, but even to the point of persecuting them. So, vindication has three parts. First part is the emphasis on God's sovereignty in choosing Israel to begin with. So he's going to explain this doctrine of election. So we're going to spend some time, not today, but starting next time, looking at this concept of God's choice, and particularly his choice of Israel. And in that, not only do we gain an understanding of this whole concept, but what Paul is laying here is the groundwork To explain, God is sovereign in choosing, so he is also sovereign in choosing Gentiles. He's also sovereign in setting aside Israel. And in that, we will also see that uh, he is sovereign in rejecting, on a temporary basis, the nation of Israel. That's chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. But... The church does not replace Israel because God still will fulfill everything that he has promised, all of the commitments he has made, all of the covenants, God will fulfill. It's just a matter of the timing. So there's still a restoration for the nation of Israel. And in fact, all of Israel shall be saved, key phrase in chapter 11. So we have Israel's choice. And God's sovereign in that. God is also sovereign in Israel's discipline. They are set aside, not rejected, and in fact, they will be restored. So we have a future salvation for the nation of Israel. So on one slide, you have summary of the three chapters. In outline form, we have an introduction, we have the provision of God's righteousness, essentially after the introduction, first eight chapters, vindication, nine through eleven, and the first major section within the division, past sovereign election of Israel. Everything that we talk about here is Israel. A lot of people miss that. If you miss that, you're going to misunderstand some of the individual passages that we'll look at. So you need to keep in mind this is dealing with the nation of Israel. The concept of election is dealing with Israel. Now there's some things and analogies that we can draw from it in terms of the broader concept or the more specific maybe. When we talk about individual choice, those sort of things, that controversial issue, hopefully we'll try to clarify some of those things. So chapter 9, 1 through 29, past sovereign election of Israel. And Paul begins, he wants to reach Israel, uh, Israelites. So he sincerely is explaining his sorrow. And since we're in the section of vindication, I call Paul, Paul's sorrow vindicated. In that, he gives us a lot of little detail concerning the reality of it. In fact, he speaks of being in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. His conscience is clear in terms of this sorrow, so his sorrow is vindicated for his people. And we looked at the first three verses there, where that sorrow is basically described, one through three. And today we're going to focus on the next part. So verse 1 It's a sincere evaluation of his emotional state and his relationship to his own people. He's a Jew, remember? And we have the details of that sorrow in verse 2. And then uh, he even, it is such a deep sorrow that if it would be possible, and here's what we'll pick up, Paul would uh, sacrifice himself. He would substitute himself. If you haven't noticed already, I'm using S to alliterate here. Sovereignty, sorrow, sincerity, sorrow again, substitution. So, let's pick up where we left off last time. Beginning in uh, verse 3, for I could wish, here's that desire to be a substitute. Remember, we spent a lot of time explaining that this wish, it's not a prayer, it's more of a Kind of an idea of communicating this deep sorrow that he has. I wish that I myself were accursed. We looked at that word and I tried to summarize what's involved in that. The wish there is in the imperfect tense, which indicates you could say, I could wish or this, if it were possible, this is what I would desire. It's a past tense. It's a little indefinite. It's not eras. It's not an actual prayer. It's similar to just a desire to be involved in something. And it's almost, if it happens, fine. If it doesn't happen, if it doesn't, I gave you an example of the usage of this kind of an imperfect in Acts twenty-five twenty-two. And in fact, it's an impossible wish. Paul could not be accursed. And I think he uses that word because it's related to what Jesus did on the cross. He became the curse. He became cursed, and he was the only legitimate and the only one capable of being a substitute, even though in the passage, this condemnation, Jesus took it all, and Paul, the idea of of cursed here, this is the essence of it, anathema, if Paul could be judged, if Paul could take the penalty, if Paul could uh, be the substitute, then uh, if it were possible, that's how deep his sorrow is, and he'd be willing to do it. And we saw in the text, in fact, when I show the slide next, it has the idea of God being separated from Christ, just from the prepositions. Prepositions indicate that. In fact, uh, the word separated from is just one word in the Greek text. It's a preposition, but it carries this idea of separation. And the, for the sake of is only one word in the Greek text. We looked at these last time. Who pair. It's very common in the context of substitution. One person being substituted for another. And it's used in many of those passages that refer to Christ being our substitute. So if it were be possible that Paul could be in some way a substitute, he would be willing his his wish or his desire. But why can Paul not be separated from Christ? And why can Paul not be a substitute? She's already shot, Because of the eternal security that he talked about in Romans chapter eight that Bill is pointing at. And why could he not be an adequate substitute? He's a sinner. He's also a sinner. Exactly. You would have to be spotless. a perfect, spotless sacrifice. Perfect. Yeah. So it's an impossible wish. Does that make sense? And this desire, and he's emphasizing here, my brethren. Now, most commonly, when Paul uses my brethren or my brothers, basically, who's he referring to? Jesus. He's talking about a spiritual relationship, a spiritual Bond that he has with other believers or that we all have with one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So his brethren, in this context, he's not talking about believers here. That's pretty clear even from the beginning here, but we'll be more clear as we get further, alright? And if that's not clear enough, he's talking about brothers in terms of ethnicity. Fellow Jew. Brothers in terms of being members of the nation of Israel. That makes sense? When you study words in the Bible, in fact, when we communicate, we communicate in such a way that we might use a word that means one thing here, and it might mean one thing different over here, depending on the context. We do this all the time. We don't even think about it. But in our communication, we can pick it up because we give little clues concerning what we talk about, right? You do the same thing with Bible words. Just because you have a meaning of a word in one context doesn't mean that that word means the same thing everywhere else. Here's kind of an example where Paul uses a word for brothers in a spiritual sense in some places, but not in this place because the context dictates something different. So when he's talking about brethren here, it's my kinsman according to the flesh. And here's another example. Remember we saw the word sarks there. Word flesh. And we just saw it in chapter 7. Very common there. And in chapter 7, what does it mean there? Perfect. Primarily refers to the sinful old nature that crops up. Does damage to us. How is it used here? It's not used in necessarily that negative, sinful, although all people have sinful natures, but he's using it in that other sense. In fact, we're going to see the same word used in reference to Messiah. Did Jesus have a sinful flesh? No. So the flesh in itself is not, by itself, is not necessarily sinful. Jesus had flesh had body, body parts. And what he's talking about, my kinsmen, according to the natural or the normal, the physical, you might say, in relationship to our ethnicity. We are brothers, we are of the same nature, we are kinsmen. We are we have a relationship. So it's very clear that he's talking about Jewish people, particularly in the first century, but basically any time after the rejection of Messiah.
1: So here you could say it refers simply to your genetic DNA. Yeah,
0: yeah. It identifies all the DNA, what makes you a Jew, which is separate from everybody else. Right. So two words in the same context that we've seen before that are used differently in this context. But the context determines the meaning, always. And this is just how we communicate. The Bible communicates in the way that... Uh, we normally do. So, in fact, let me point out, we, we pointed out separated from, that's preposition, apo, for the sake of, that's pair, and that's where we get the idea of this impossible wish of separating from Christ and substituting condemnation on him instead of the Jewish people. And it's a little bit like Jeremiah, and for the sake of time, just jot it down, you might look at it, In fact, all of the prophets, if you study them, Isaiah as well, they have a very similar sorrow for their kinsmen, for their fellow Jewish people, and particularly Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is on the verge, particularly in chapter 4, of the nation to be taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire, to be destroyed as a nation. This is in uh, 580. Six in that time frame when the Babylonian empire would destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the entire nation, take many of them captive. Would
1: Paul have had a similar sense from his writings that there was impending judgment coming on as Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a very clear picture of what was going to happen. Yes, yes. Does Paul's writing suggest that he had
0: a? He probably had a sense. We don't have an indication that he had clear revelation. That, yeah, the difference between. But if you just look at the culture, the increase there would have been an increase of anti-Semitism in this time frame. This would be late. Let's see when Romans written. Late fifties. He was martyred in the sixties, seventy A.D. The city of Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed again. Jews were expelled from the land of Israel, scattered all over the world. And there was a final scattering in one thirty-five, I believe. So Jeremiah, in one of the passages, there's many others, Jeremiah 4.19. It's also like Moses. In fact, uh, what's the context of Moses? In fact, let's look that one up. Somebody look up Exodus 32, just to get the feel of... The similarity between Paul and Moses. Exodus 32. Anyone know what the occasion of this is? There's the context right there. This is on the occasion. Remember, Moses is up on Sinai receiving the law and spending time on uh, the mountain there. God revealing himself. God revealing the law. And it's taking too long. The people are getting impatient. They're getting a little anxious here. And there's a suggestion that, uh, why don't we go back to Egypt? I mean, this thing is uncomfortable. We don't like it here in the wilderness. We have trouble getting water. We, you know, the, the manna is starting to get old. Yep. Uh, let's go back to Egypt. So they come up with, gather all the jewelry, the earrings and everything, throw it in, uh, in the fire. In the fire. Pops, and when, uh, when uh, Moses asked, "Well, what happened?" They, Aaron says, "Well, I don't know. It just popped out. <laughs> really popped literally out.
1: What
0: yes, that's right. Yeah. It just popped out. Something like the the cow there. <laughs> it just, just came out. Yep. yep. This was very common. In fact, in the Cairo Museum, you have a statue of a bull." Right there, and usually you'll have the pharaoh underneath it. Both were worshipped, but notice the god of cattle or bulls is greater than pharaoh. Pharaoh is still a god, but one is superior over the other. So they worshipped all kinds of
1: weird play things. Playing the clarinet.
0: Playing the clarinet. That's, just oh, no. a, that's another statue of another pharaoh. I'm not sure which one here. So anyway, so the covenant is broken in Exodus 32 and 33. Remember, Moses breaks the tablets, casts them and breaks them. It's as a result of this situation. And how does Moses respond? Look at verses 32, 7 through 14. Let me just highlight a couple of things here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people. Notice God says your people.
1: <laughs>
0: He's disassociating himself. Your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God is saying, I'm going to wipe my hands of these guys. Okay. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, just like this one here, and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They disassociated themselves from God. This is our God, this golden calf. So God disassociates himself from them. And then skip down to verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, Oh Lord, why does thine anger burn against thy people? <laughs> He's reminding God here. God says, Moses, let
2: me alone. I'm going to wipe these people out. Yeah. Whatever.
0: Yeah. Very good point. I should have read that one. Verse 10. Now then, let me alone. This is God speaking that my anger may burn against them. And that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. So God wants to start over. He wants to violate his covenant. Actually, would it be violated? If it was, it was, was broken. broken. Good point. I don't
2: think, I don't think it would have been. It still would have.
0: Well, it would have not violated the Mosaic covenant, but it would have violated the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, because they had promised. Abraham. Right. The Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. yeah.
3: And, and there's another point I'd like to touch on here. When God says to Moses, "Your people," we have to remember that the reason Aaron was in charge was because Moses told God, "No, I don't want to do what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be disposed. Right. I want you to." And so God then provided Aaron and caused Moses to
0: go. Yeah, good point.
3: So it's always wise when God says, "I want you to do this." Yes. That's right. No, is not going to. We
0: happen. suffer consequences. Yep. So twelve. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, in other words, he's explaining to God, remember God, he's basically saying, God, remember all these things, as if, what is this? What do we call this? Intercession. Because God doesn't forget. In other words, God's mind isn't clouded here. This is what anthropomorphism, in other words, this is a way of communicating such that we can understand something of God by portraying him like us. That's an anthropomorphism. It's as if God, when He says these things, it's as if He forgot His covenants, His relationship, past history, etc.
2: Could it Though. also just be that Moses is speaking to God as individual um, like opposite like, on, like any conversation? Yes. Not, not specifically that God. I know you don't remember this, but that <laughs> yes. as one individual yes. having a conversation Can directly to the other.
0: Yes, good point, very good point, very relational. Mm -hmm. So he's reminding, why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, God, or he, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? In other words, your glory is threatened if you follow through on what you're saying here. Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. And then verse 13, remember Abraham, here's the covenant. Mm -hmm. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyselves, that's the covenant, and did say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And then 14, so the Lord changed his mind. That's an anthropomorphism. Why is it an anthropomorphism? What's the nature of God? He's mm-hmm. immutable. He's immutable. He doesn't change his mind.
3: But we have to be careful and not read into Scripture what things beyond what it says. Right. Because God, in fact, being sovereign, has the power to make a change in what he wants to do. And we have to be careful and saying that he does not, because that is our interpretation of who he is, right. not his interpretation of who he
0: is. But we can't contradict what he has also stated clearly in terms of not changing. So there's a fine so, fine line the there. there that, we have to be really
3: careful to always right. be faithful to the text.
0: Exactly. And not
3: reinterpret the text according to our understanding. Yes, always. Because we're taught in Isaiah 55, 8, 9
0: that That's we right. will
1: not understand.
0: It. That's right. Maddie?
1: So God does reserve the right for judgment. So Jonah,
0: yeah, right, God yeah, said, that's
1: right. I'm going to bring judgment, but the people repented and God said, I'm going to hold back.
0: Right, judgment. right. And so
1: in that way, God does have the right to change his mind concerning judgment and
0: to be... Without violating, without violating his character. immutability. Yeah,
2: right. and so the question is, what is immutability and Certainly, God never changes nature his nature's essence and character. Right. He never does. Right. That's why I love Second Timothy two thirteen. That it's just this fraction of mm-hmm. a verse that says that if we are faithful, God will remain faithful, or He cannot deny Himself. Right. I I don't get and about that. to show
1: mercy, the part of God.
2: It? Yeah. It is.
1: So He yeah. can change from wrath to mercy to get the on um, our response to his character. Right? Noah's a prime example. And and so here's the beautiful thing that Moses is actually standing in as an intermediary since so he right. is a type of Christ in this situation, asking God to turn away wrath.
0: And the verses come, and God in wow. fact does yeah, it, and he rewrites the Ten Commandments, Which also or the law, essentially.
2: Which
1: also points to our own prayer life and our interceding for others, because if he listened to Moses and he listened to others, he might choose if we're interceding for someone. They might change their hearts, and he would change his heart and his their destination, not send someone to hell, or whatever of our interceding cause sure. this Holy Spirit can work in that. It. It's not us doing it. Right. But we have to not remember not to <laughs> minimize the importance of our own intercession. Mm-hmm. The biggest
3: issue, I'm convinced, the biggest issue is approach the scriptures with profound sense of Yes.
1: Religion. Yes. So we, and we approach God with a profound sense
0: that he gives us little glimpses of who he is. Mm-hmm. We will never in all eternity... Totally. And, or and, even approach...
3: Yeah. And, and so we need to continually come back to that yes. position of humility and, and approaching the scriptures and humility.
0: Absolutely. And this is Skip okay. down to verse 30. And it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement... For your sin, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, "Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if Thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from Thy book which Thou hast written." What does that sound like?
2: <laughs>
0: sounds like Paul, yeah. or Paul sounds like Moses, yeah, right? Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Which again is the substitute.
3: Yeah, he is expressing
0: depth of concern. Yes, deep concern. Okay, so that's thirty and thirty-two. Spend the rest of our time looking at verse four. We don't have enough time to look at verse five. The rest of the passage here. We spent far more time looking at the end of verse three there and Paul's sorrow as it's expressed in the words there. But let's take a look at what Paul has here. He's vindicating his sorrow. And what I mean by that is he's going to explain the great privileges that Israel has, that God has given and chosen Israel for a great purpose. And they are the possessors of special privileges. That's verse four. And in that, I think Paul has a sense that Much like, as we were talking about, the Exodus experience, not that it's related to this passage, but I think Paul had a sense that all of that was at risk. Not that God is going to take away these privileges, because I think these are part of what God has established by covenant. In fact, that's one of the words that's mentioned here. But uh, like the children of Israel, that first generation that left Egypt They died in the wilderness. They did not enter the land. The land was theirs by possession, but they lost it because of their unfaithfulness and grumbling and everything that the book of Exodus outlines there. He sees the generation of the first century in a similar situation where, yes, Israel is privileged. They have all of the privileges described in verse 4 and going into verse 5 as well, but because they have rejected the Messiah, that generation will in fact miss out on the blessings of Messiah and miss out on all that these privileges entail in terms of them as a nation. So it vindicates his sorrow because he doesn't want to see them lose. He doesn't want them to lose out on the blessings that are available in uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah that they rejected. So verse 4 are the special privileges. And he begins, in fact, it's one sentence, so I'm kind of structuring it here together, that starts in verse 3. We looked at verse 3, but notice there's a comma at the end of verse 3. And then verse 4, who are Israelites. He just talked about his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he identifies them more clearly now who are Israelites. Israelites. I think Paul, by choosing the term Israelite here, is, I think, being very precise. If you looked at all of the other parts of the book of Romans, he uses a different word. He uses a word that is translated Jews. In other words, it's a word related to Judah. Everywhere, but except in chapters 9 through 11, He identifies them as Israelites, in fact, 12 times in this context. So let's see what's in view here. And he's going to further specify and define what he means when we get into the next passage. We won't have time today to get into that, but next time we will look at the concept of who Israelites are. But just to kind of set the stage here and to identify them, In this context, so that we'll be prepared to see what he says next. I'll just ask you, give me your thoughts. What is an Israelite? Is an
2: Israelite a Jewish person, but if you get
0: to who are of
2: Israel are really Israel.
0: Israelites. Who is Paul identifying as an Israelite? Now think it through. And what is the difference between a Jew and an Israelite? Now, I think, remember, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. In that context, God changes the name of Jacob to Israel. And I think that's very important, particularly in this context. Now, you'll notice, and we'll look at this in more detail, beginning in verse 6 and on, 6 through about 13, where it's going to be very precise in terms of what he means by an Israelite. So the question, what is an Israelite? Is an Israelite a descendant of Abraham? In fact, most of you are nodding yes. Well, is Ishmael an Israelite? And I'd say no. In fact, technically or more specifically, not every descendant of Abraham is an Israelite. In fact, there are other descendants of Abraham that are not. Not only Ishmael, but remember, after Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, and they had children. Those children are not identified. They have descendants, but they're not identified as Israelites. So, an Israelite is through the line of Isaac. But even then, is an Israelite a descendant of Abraham and Isaac well, we're going to see in the next passage, there's going to be a distinction between Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob becomes Israel. So there's a distinction that we need to keep in mind here. So let me ask you a follow-on question. There's, there's Jacob and Esau. Is Esau an Israelite? Well, if you study the history of Esau, he becomes Edom. They are not Israelites. They're Edomites. They're different. An Israelite is a descendant of Abraham, but more specifically, also a descendant of Isaac and also a descendant of Jacob. And it's Jacob's name that's changed to Israel. So there's a distinction that's going to be made in the next passage beginning in verse 6. And I think that's how he's using the term Israelite here. Now he's going to spell out all of these privileges that God has granted to Israelites that have this special relationship. Normally and commonly they're referred to as Jews, but I think more specifically in this context they're called Israelites. The first item, to whom belongs the adoption as sons? Do you remember reading about this little phrase as well? We saw that in chapter 8 in reference to... Jew and Gentile, in reference to people that have trusted in Jesus Christ, they have received an adoption. But even before that, before Messiah, I think in the Exodus experience, those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, in fact, adopted and were part of the family of God. In fact, they were the original family of God. They were God's People And part of the Exodus experience is the beginning of them as a people, and the Exodus you could view as a salvation experience from the bondage in Egypt. So I think that's what is in view here. So the emphasis with this adoption that these people, these Israelites, are part of the family of God. There is no other nation that has that privilege. No other peoples have the identification as adopted as sons. Now the next privilege the and the glory, we have a series here of several of these uh, privileges that God has granted. Each one of them are unique to, to the nation of Israel, to those descendants identified as Israelites. What's in view, let me ask you, what's in view in terms of the glory? What do you think is referenced here? Well, if you remember also in the Exodus experience in the wilderness, first of all, as early as the events surrounding the Exodus, God began to manifest his glory in a visible experiential way. Brightness, that was what is summarized as glory. So in Exodus 13, 21 through 22, we won't look these up, but you can jot them down, and you'll see a description of a pillar of cloud that uh, was before the children of Israel, and then at night, a pillar of fire. In fact, they were guided in the wilderness with this manifestation of God's glory. And then at Sinai itself, we saw the same phenomenon on the mountain. We had a display of the visible presence you might say, or the the manifestation of God himself in visible and not only visible form but earthquake and the shaking of the mountain itself and fire where God displayed his glory and you can read that that example at Sinai exodus twenty four fifteen through eighteen, and then we have. A lot of discussion at Sinai concerning the law. And then after the law is given, we looked at the passage in Exodus 32. I didn't intend to spend so much time, but it goes along with what we're talking about here. Part of the law was instructions for building a tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was built at the end of the book of Exodus, we have a record in chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, where God displayed a visible presence in the tabernacle as well. Later on in Israel's history, after their uh, full-blown nation in the reign of Solomon, remember Solomon builds a temple, 1 Kings 8 is a record of that, and no longer will the manifestation of God's presence be in the tabernacle, it will now be in a more permanent structure, call that the temple. And God manifested his presence in a similar way. And if you remember the history of Israel, idolatry enters, there's decline in the nation, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians, some of them taken captive. The southern kingdom also will be captured later, a few hundred years later, by the Babylonians. And what happens to the glory? Well, before the temple is destroyed, The glory departs the temple, and that's described in Ezekiel chapter 10, specifically verse 4, verse 19. And then the glory departs from the Mount of Olives recorded in chapter 11. I don't have that on the slide. But the glory departs. Now think through. Did the glory return when the temple was rebuilt? No, there's no example. There was no glory in the Herodian temple or the... uh, Nehemiah Temple, in fact, the glory never returned. Now, the glory did come in the form of Jesus Christ, but it was veiled, except on one small occasion when he transfigured himself and only three disciples were witnesses of it. But we also know, for example, Matthew twenty-four thirty. Jesus Christ, when he returns, will be manifested in glory every eye shall see. And it will be more glorious than anything the children of Israel experienced. Now, Jesus Christ comes from Israel. So, he's going to manifest his glory in his coming to Israel once again at the second coming. There's also a passage in Isaiah 4, 5, and 6. I think it's in the context of the millennial kingdom and I believe the glory will be displayed there again. In fact, that Isaiah passage, the description sounds very similar to the experience of the Israelites in the the wilderness. So I think the essence of this great privilege that is granted to only Israel is the visible presence of God himself. No other nation experienced that glory. So, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants. Now, because we took so much time earlier, I'm not going to have time to go into detail here. We'll save that for next time. But I'd like to go over what is in view in the covenants. Notice it's plural, so it probably includes more than simply the Mosaic covenant and or more than probably just the abrahamic covenant but we'll save that for later on but let's uh, draw to a conclusion here let me just summarize a few things i want to get to one particular slide we also have another great privilege and keep in mind these privileges are for israel and israel alone tremendous privilege The next one, the giving of the law, that's at Sinai. We talked a little bit about it. I'll discuss it in more detail. Notice also, and the temple service. And this temple service is the the ritual, the sacrifices that God set up in the law that Israel was to abide by and that was carried through imperfectly throughout their history, the temple service. And I want to illustrate it with... Extending even into the first century, here's a photograph of Herod's temple where the, this temple service was administered, sacrifices were offered, Jews would gather, they would bring animals, etc. And it would be in front of the structure there in the model to the, to the right part of the slide there. And the next slide that I want to show you, when we went to Israel, we visited Temple Mount And we were right on the spot, very close to where not only Solomon's temple was, but archaeologists believe that the Herodian temple also existed. In fact, on the photograph, just to the left of the temple sanctuary or the structure there, outside that wall there, very close to the wall, this photograph was taken of our group. So we were on the stairs looking up to what exists today, the Dome of the Rock, but it's believed that the Holy of Holies was on the very site of what exists today on that site. So we walked that whole area, and this is where the temple service took place. So here's another photograph of the same location to give you the sense of where we were in terms of these experiences that Jews had until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, where that generation lost the benefits of the great privileges that God had extended to them as a nation. So let's conclude with a closing thought here, and we might apply this as well to us because there's a principle here that is applicable not only to Israel, but I think a principle in general of Scripture. And this principle, to the extent one receives privileges, the Israelites have tremendous privileges, and they, they still possess these. And God will still in the future, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about, still in the future, experience the benefits of these privileges, but to the extent one receives privileges, to that extent, responsibilities also follow. And because the nation rejected her Messiah, that first century generation lost out on experiencing the, the blessings and the benefits of those privileges. But there'll come a future day when they will experience them in full. The principle we can apply, God has given us tremendous blessings and privileges as well, and he desires us to experience them to the fullest, but we need to walk faithfully with him because we have responsibilities as well. We have tremendous privileges, but responsibilities follow. Let's close in a word of prayer.